TOB number 20, general audience of March 5th, 1980. Knowledge and procreation, Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, between poverty of expression and depth of meaning. To the whole of our analyses devoted to the biblical beginning, we wish to add a further brief passage taken from Genesis chapter 4. For this purpose, however, we must always go back to the words spoken by Jesus Christ in the dialogue with the Pharisees. See Matthew 19 and Mark 10. Within the sphere of which our reflections are unfolding, they concern the context of human existence, according to which death and the destruction of the body connected with it, according to those words, to dust you shall return, Genesis 3:19 have become man's common lot. Christ appeals to the beginning, to the original dimension of the mystery of creation. When this dimension had already been shattered by the mysterium iniquitatis, the mystery of iniquity, that is, by sin, and together with sin also by death, mysterium mortis, mystery of death. Sin and death have entered into man's history, in some way, through the very heart of that unity that had from the beginning been formed by man and woman, created and called to become one flesh. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Already at the beginning of our meditations, we observe that, by appealing to the beginning, Christ leads us in some way beyond the limits of man's hereditary sinfulness to his original innocence. He thus allows us to find the continuity and the link that exists between these two situations. The situations by which the drama of the origins was produced, as well as the revelation of the mystery of man to historical man. This authorizes us, so to speak, after the analyses concerning the state of original innocence, to move on to the last of these analyses, namely, to the analysis of knowledge and procreation. Thematically, knowledge is closely tied to the blessing of fruitfulness, inserted in the first account of the creation of man as male and female, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 through 28. Historically, by contrast, it is already inserted into the horizon of sin and death, which, as Genesis 3 teaches, has weighed heavily on the consciousness of the meaning of the human body, as soon as the first covenant with the Creator was broken. In Genesis chapter 4, and thus still within the boundaries of the Yahweh's text, we read, Adam united with Eve his wife, who conceived and gave birth to Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she gave birth also to his brother Abel. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1 through 2. If we connect that first fact of the birth of a man on earth with knowledge, we do so on the basis of the literal translation of the text, according to which conjugal union is defined precisely as knowledge. In fact, the translation just quoted says, Adam united himself with Eve, his wife, while according to the letter, one should translate knew his wife which seems to correspond more exactly to the Semitic term yada. One can see in this a sign of the poverty of the ancient language, which lacked varied expressions for defining differentiated facts. Nevertheless, 
It remains significant that the situation in which husband and wife unite so intimately among themselves as to form one flesh was defined as knowledge. In this way, in fact, from the very poverty of the language, there seems to arise a specific depth of meaning that derives from all the meanings analyzed up to this point. Evidently, this depth is also important with respect to the archetype of the way we conceive bodily man, his masculinity and femininity, and thus his sex. Thus the term knowledge used in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1 through 2, and often in the Bible, raises the conjugal relation of man and woman, that is, the fact that through the duality of sex they become one flesh, and brings it into the specific dimension of the persons. Genesis 4, 1 through 2 speaks only about knowledge of the woman by the man, as if to underline above all the man's activity. One can, however, also speak of the reciprocity of this knowledge in which man and woman participate through their body and their sex. Let us add that a series of subsequent biblical texts, for example, the very same chapter of Genesis, see Genesis 4, 17, 25, speak with the same language. And this way of speaking goes all the way up to the words spoken by Mary of Nazareth in the Annunciation. How is this possible? I do not know man. Luke chapter 1, verse 34. Knowledge as personal archetype. Thus, with that biblical new, which appears for the first time in Genesis chapter 4, 1 through 2, we find ourselves face to face with, on the one hand, the direct expression of human intentionality, because it is proper to knowledge, and on the other hand, the whole reality of conjugal life and conjugal union in which man and woman become one flesh. When it speaks of knowledge here, even if only because of the poverty of its language, the Bible indicates the deepest essence of the reality of shared married life. This essence appears as a component and at the same time as a result of the meanings the traces of which we have been trying to follow from the beginning of our study. It is in fact part of the consciousness of the meaning of one's body. In Genesis 4, 1, when they become one flesh, the man and the woman experience the meaning of their bodies in a particular way. Together thus, they thus become one single subject, as it were, of that act and that experience, although they remain two really distinct subjects in this unity. This authorizes us in some sense to affirm that the husband knows the wife and that both know each other reciprocally. Thus, they reveal themselves to one another with that specific depth of their hu own human eye, which precisely reveals itself also through their sex, their masculinity and femininity. And thus, in a singular way, the woman is given in the mode of knowledge to the man and he to her. If we are to keep continuity with the analyses carried out so far, especially with the final ones interpreting man in the dimension of gift, we must observe that according to the to Genesis datum, that which is given, and donum, gift, are equivalent. Nevertheless, Genesis chapter 4, verse 1 through 2, stresses above all datum. In conjugal knowledge, the woman is given to the man and he to her because the body and its sex 
enter directly into the very structure and content of this knowledge. Thus, the reality of conjugal union, in which man and woman become one flesh, contains in itself a new and in some way definitive discovery of the meaning of the human body in its masculinity and femininity. Yet, in view of this discovery, is it right to speak only of sexual life together? One must keep in mind that each of them, the man and the woman, is not only a passive object defined by his own body and his own sex, and in this way determined by nature. On the contrary, precisely through being man and woman, each of them is given to the other as a unique and unrepeatable subject, as I, as a person. His sex is not only decisive for man's somatic individuality, but at the same time it defines his personal identity and concreteness. And exactly in this personal identity and concreteness as an unrepeatable feminine or masculine I, man is known. When the words of Genesis 2.24 come true, the man will unite with his wife and the two will be one flesh. The knowledge about which Genesis chapter 4 verse 1 through 2 and all subsequent biblical texts speak reaches the innermost roots of this identity and concreteness, which man and woman owe to their sex. Such concreteness means both the uniqueness and unrepeatability of the person. It was thus worthwhile to reflect about the eloquence of the biblical text quoted and of the word new. Despite the apparent lack of terminological precision, it allows us to dwell on the depth and the dimensions of a concept of which our contemporary language, precise though it is, deprives us.